Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This, of course, is the show where we raid the journalistic fridge. We take out a few leftover stories, sprinkle on our secret Crux brand sauce, and serve them up piping hot and delicious. That, at least, is our marketing claim, and we are sticking to it. Here's what's on the menu this week. We begin, once again, with the crisis in Ukraine. We've got three new developments on the efforts that Pope Francis and his Vatican team are trying to make in the conflict, including a dramatic, impromptu appeal from the Pope on Sunday to the leaders of both Russia and Ukraine. We'll break all that down for you. Second, the trials of the trial. The Vatican's much-ballyhooed trial of the century involving charges of financial graft, crime, misappropriation, embezzlement, basically having your hands caught in the cookie jar, started up again last week after its summer hiatus, while the testimony continues to raise questions about the substance of the charges. The prosecution did get an important vote of confidence from Pope Francis. We'll explain what's going on there. Third, trouble in East Timor, a Nobel Prize-winning Catholic bishop and one-time human rights hero, is facing charges of sexual abuse and misconduct, and calls for a McCarrick-style investigation of what the Vatican knew and when it knew it. Uh, We'll uh, give you the latest on that front. Fourth, a fascinating footnote from the Philippines. The Filipino bishops are mauling a proposal to Rome, which, if adopted, has the potential to revolutionize the delivery of pastoral care in the Catholic Church in the 21st century. And finally, of hurricanes and holiness. In the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, which swept through Cuba and then southeastern Florida recently, the Catholic Church is once again mobilizing to deliver humanitarian assistance to the people whose lives have been shipwrecked by this crisis. It is once again a reminder of the paradoxical effect that tragedy has the somewhat unique capacity to summon the very best angels of our nature. We'll talk about what's going on there. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church after a short break, so please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, October 4th. Those of you who watch this show on a regular basis will already have snooped out that we are not broadcasting this week from our regular studio setting in Rome. Actually, at the moment, we are in Denver, Colorado, visiting the family of my wife, Elise. Shortly, we'll be heading to my old stomping grounds, the high plains of western Kansas, where I'm set to pick up some kind of unspecified alumnus award from my alma mater, Fort Hay State University. Go Tigers! We are going to have a serious conversation, however, about their standards for handing out hardware like this. Then, we will be in Houston where I will be speaking at the annual Archdiocesan Red Mass. So a very busy couple of weeks, but none of that means we do not still have our eyes firmly fixed on Rome and the Vatican. So let's dive in. We begin again with the crisis in Ukraine. Of course, the latest development on that front is represented by the referenda that Russia recently organized in four pieces of Ukrainian territory. And the subsequent announcement on the back of those referenda by Russian President Vladimir Putin, that those territories are being annexed to Russia. Now, those referenda were not taken seriously by much of the international community. Obviously, 
had been rejected by the Ukrainians, and in fact, battlefield conditions are such that it does not appear the Russians even have firm control over at least some of this territory. But in any event, President Putin has indicated that anybody who tries to roll back these annexations will face the full force of the Russian military. Nothing is off the table, he has said, including, he has hinted, not so subtly, the use of Russia's nuclear arsenal. Some observers believe this is the closest the world has actually come to a real nuclear conflict since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And just as in those tense days, 60 years ago, the Pope at that time, now St. John XXIII, issued direct personal appeals to the two leaders involved at the time, President John F. Kennedy of the United States and Chairman Nikita Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. So too this time, Pope Francis on Sunday, during his traditional noontime Angelus address, set aside his prepared text and in impromptu fashion, although one has to believe he had thought very carefully about what he wanted to say, acknowledged that this new twist in the saga has raised again the specter of a nuclear conflict and issued plaintive appeals to the leaders on both sides, to Russian President Vladimir Putin by name. He asked him to stop the spiral of death. And to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, he asked him to be open to all efforts at dialogue to restore peace. Now, undoubtedly, the Pope upsetting the apple cart like this is designed to get across just how engaged he is with the crisis and just how deeply concerned he is about the precipice at which the world appears to be standing at the moment. Now, this is coupled with our second development, which is last week, the Vatican published, well, actually, Civiltà Cattolica, the Jesuit-edited semi-official Vatican Review, published a transcript of a conversation that Pope Francis had with some of his Jesuit confreres while he was in Kazakhstan recently. These are Jesuits who serve the territories of the Russias. Talked at length about Ukraine. He was at pains to insist how often he has mentioned the Ukrainian conflict, how he has explicitly denounced the barbarity and the atrocities, the human rights violations this conflict has triggered. But at the same time, He also repeated things that in different ways he has said before, which is he does not see this as a simplistic black v. white scenario. He said this is not a cowboy movie in which there are simplistic good guys and bad guys, and also suggested this isn't merely a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. He called it a world war, and he said what we're seeing is the influence of what he called internationalisms, which is a bit of a neologism, which is basically, I guess, a euphemism uh, for other international players that Pope Francis has said are exploiting this conflict, actually have an interest in sort of ginning it up and exacerbating it. Number one, because it gives them an opportunity to test new weapon systems. And number two, because it gives them an opportunity to sell those weapon systems. In other words, to profit from the carnage. Now, look, all this is broadly consistent with what we have heard from Pope Francis and his Vatican team since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. On the one hand, 
there is an increasingly sharp rhetoric, both from the Pope and from his Vatican aides, making clear that the aggressor in this scenario is, in fact, Russia under Vladimir Putin. Remember, they were criticized at the beginning for not mentioning Putin's name. Well, those days certainly are over. The Pope and his aides also have explicitly said that the evidence is conclusive, that there have been war crimes, atrocities, human rights violations since the beginning of this conflict. On the other hand, it is also clear that Pope Francis wants to avoid demonizing Russia and Putin, and to the extent possible, he is trying to keep lines of communications open with all sides in an effort to play the role of peacemaker. We also learn from this conversation with the Jesuits in Kazakhstan that Pope Francis was involved in some way and at some level in an effort to arrange and exchange prisoners between Russia and Ukraine. The Pope indicated that at some point, a senior Ukrainian official had come to him with a list of 300 Ukrainians being held by the Russians and asked if the Pope could help jumpstart negotiations to arrange an exchange. The Pope said he immediately called the Russian ambassador to the Vatican and asked, what can I do? Now, we know that some days after that, this prisoner swap did in fact happen. At the time, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, publicly thanked Turkey and Saudi Arabia for their roles in arranging it, didn't say anything about the Vatican, but one certainly has to imagine that this demonstration of personal interest on the part of Pope Francis did have some impact. Again, part of the Vatican's full court press to avoid what I think everyone regards as the nightmare scenario here, which would be a sort of well, full-scale nuclear war. Final point worth thinking about a bit in all of this is that this effort by the Vatican to try to remain even-handed, certainly to express their sympathy for Ukraine and their acknowledgement that Ukraine is the aggrieved party here, but nevertheless, all this also to suggest that Russia may have some legitimate security concerns. Remember the Pope's line about NATO barking at Russia's door? Also, that Russia, too, is suffering, and generally speaking, not to burn that bridge. All of that substantively sometimes makes the line coming from the Vatican sound, ironically, a little bit closer to that of, say, Beijing or New Delhi, that is China or India, than, say, Washington or London, the, the Vatican's traditional Western allies. One thing to think about is that is, to some extent, the inevitable consequence of what has happened in Catholicism over the last century. Folks, let's face it, Catholicism is no longer primarily a Western religion. Today, there are 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. More than two-thirds of them live outside the West. They live in Latin America and Africa and Asia. And by the middle of this century, that is the year 2050, that's going to be three-quarters. And you know, the truth of it is, the typical person in Latin America or Africa or Asia, while they might have no sympathy for Russia and might see Putin as a bully, they're not necessarily prepared to axiomatically believe in the virtue of the United States or the other Western powers either, and are likely to have a more mixed and ambivalent response to this conflict. And the fact that Pope Francis is the first pope outside the West in centuries and the first ever from the Southern Hemisphere probably indicates he is doing nothing more 
than giving voice to this broad demographic transition in Catholicism. In other words, look, if you're frustrated that the Vatican sometimes sounds like Beijing rather than Washington, I guess my bottom line is get over it, folks, because that's the demographic reality of Catholicism today. All right, we shift now to the trials of the trials. So the Vatican's mega trial involving charges of financial crime against 10 defendants, including for the very first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Bicciu, got back in business this past week, held a hearing on the 27th of September. However, if you're thinking this signals the end game is at hand, uh-uh, there are still about 27 more prosecution witnesses to be heard. And then 150 or so defense witnesses, roughly speaking, 200 still to be heard. And we've been at this, you know, a year and a half, almost two years by this point. So I think the best one can say is that this trial is lumbering along. Now, this past week, we heard from a prosecution witness, the Vatican's Auditor General, Alessandro Cassinis, Italian layman who said that when he was asked by the Pope to review the transaction in London, that roughly $350 to $400 million real estate deal that's at the heart of his case, he was shocked at some of the irregularities he discovered. He said he found that there had been no independent appraisal of the value of this property beyond what the financiers involved were telling the Vatican. Um, He said that some bank records were missing the paper trail and some financial transactions was spotty, and so on. Obvious red flags. Now, the question that raises, however, that was unanswered in the testimony, is if that's true, that is, if at some point in 2018, the Vatican's own Auditor General was saying something really hinky is going on here, then why is it in December of 2018 The powers that be in the Vatican Secretary of State and, reportedly, Pope Francis himself, nevertheless signed off on paying off the second Italian financier, Gianluigi Torzi, for his role in all this, and as a result, collected fees that are now the object of criminal charges in this trial. In other words, was somebody asleep at the switch? That's sort of the unanswered question. Trial has not given it to us at least yet. But what we do know is that despite the question marks surrounding the prosecution's conduct of this trial, nevertheless, they got a big vote of confidence from Pope Francis this week because the Italian lawyer, who has been the kind of lead prosecutor in the trial so far, Alessandro Didi, was just named by Pope Francis the new promoter of justice in the Vatican's civil system. That is the top dog, the big cheese. And it's hard to imagine a more explicit sort of thumbs up than that. So it would appear to be full steam ahead for the prosecution, question marks, headaches, conundra, perhaps, for the rest of us. All right, third up this week, trouble in East Timor. So Bishop Carlo Jimenez Bello, in 1996, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in conjunction with the then president of East Timor for their roles in leading that tiny Asian nation's independence movement, seeking independence from Indonesia, and for denouncing human rights abuses being committed by Indonesian forces in East Timor. It was a great feel-good story for the Catholic Church, and Bishop Bello was widely lauded all around the world 
as a moral hero, kind of the Catholic Nelson Mandela, in a sense, or Desmond Tutu from South Africa. However, in a kind of odd coda to all of this, in 2002, Bishop Bellow resigned as the bishop in East Timor. That resignation was accepted. No explanation really was ever given. He then went off to become a missionary for a few years in Mozambique. And, and to be honest, the world, including the Catholic world, kind of forgot about him until recently a Dutch magazine, and remember Indonesia, East Timor, former Dutch colonies, a Dutch magazine reporting that two men have come forward to accuse Bishop Bella of having sexually abused them when they were minors in East Timor. And apparently, on the basis of those accusations, which first surfaced in 2019, Bishop Bella was subject to a sort of suspension, uh, although not one that was publicly announced by the Vatican. Now, what all that has raised for some observers is the question of, you know, the, the Vatican, in the sort of anodyne and brief statements that it has made about this so far, it has not commented on what it knew about any of this before 2019. But certainly that 2002 resignation does raise questions about whether there were at least some early rumblings of these rumors that were floating around then, or some sense something was wrong. This past week, a spokesperson for the United Nations called for a full and transparent investigation of these charges. Advocates for victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, including Bishop Accountability, have called for a McCarrick-style probe. You will recall that when the abuse and misconduct allegations against ex-cardinal and ex-priest Theodore McCarrick surfaced in the United States, Pope Francis commissioned a thorough in-house investigation to establish who knew what when. There are calls now for a similar kind of thing with Bishop Bellow. The, the central difference, I would suppose, is that in the United States at the time, there was massive media and popular upheaval. There doesn't seem to be anything like that right now going on in East Timor, and so the pressure levels are somewhat different. We obviously at Crux will track how this plays out. All right, a footnote from the Philippines that I personally find fascinating. In their plenary assembly in July, the Filipino bishops considered a proposal to ask Rome to establish a personal prelature for the pastoral care Filipinos overseas, basically their diaspora, especially Filipino overseas workers, that is, migrants who go abroad in search of work to send remittances back home. All in, there are about 10 million Filipinos living abroad, about 3 million of whom or overseas foreign workers. Now, the personal prelature is a structure in church law that was originally proposed at Vatican II, the idea being that it is an instrument to provide non-territorial pastoral care. That is, you have a prelate who has priests and laity who collaborate, work together in the mission of the prelature, for certain specific pastoral tasks. It does not replace the diocese that it's in. That is, the Catholics there continue to be fully under the authority of the local bishop, but it supplements their efforts on the basis of a specific charism. At the moment, we've only got one personal prelature in the Catholic Church, Opus Dei, which is kind of weird, because this was envisioned in Vatican II, so decades ago, 
but it really has not been realized. A large part of the problem there is the politics around Opus Dei. Quite frankly, people who like Opus Dei tend to be protective of its status as a prelager, and therefore a little bit jealous about anybody else who wants to horn in on it. People who don't like Opus Dei are suspicious of the whole idea of a personal prelager and aren't anxious to increase their numbers. Now, those are political, not canonical or pastoral considerations. The truth of it is, in the 21st century, we live increasingly in a post-territorial culture. Social mobility, beginning in the late 20th century, relativized territoriality. And certainly in the 21st century, the rise of cyberspace, the digital world, and all of that has further put a dent in the hold that territory exercises and how people organize their lives. The Catholic Church arguably has a crying need for creative pastoral instruments to, to evangelize this non-territorial culture. And the great thing from a political point of view, nobody's mad at the Filipinos. There are no books about mad albino Filipino monks whipping themselves into murderous frenzies and trying to hijack the global Catholic Church. I mean, nobody has an axe to grind with them, so there would be no political obstacle here. One hopes that if the Filipino proposal goes through, it might break the logjam, and other things will become possible. In terms of where it stands, the Filipino bishops have decided to take one more year to study this proposal. They want to consult bishops' conferences where this prelature might set up shop to make sure those bishops would be welcome to it, which is very synodal and probably smart politics, too. Finally, this week of hurricanes and holiness. So we all know the way Hurricane Ian recently devastated first Cuba, portions of Cuba, and then portions of Florida and the southeastern United States. I mean, it basically knocked out power to the entire island of Cuba, 11 million people, many of whom are still without power as we film this episode. It's done an estimated, well, estimates vary, but somewhere between 35 and $60 billion of damage in Florida and other parts of the United States, and obviously upended the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in these regions. Once again, Catholic Charities are coming to the rescue. Catholic Charities USA has created a special fund for Hurricane Ian relief and has announced that 100% of the contributions to that fund will go to relief at the same time Catholic Charities, Catholic Relief Services, and other Catholic Charities are also mobilizing to come to the aid of Cuba. It is worth remembering that whenever a disaster strikes Cuba and Florida, Florida Catholics are, in a sense, taxed twice, because not only are they called upon to help rebuild Florida, their own state, but they are also the primary caregivers because of the Catholic ties that bind Florida and Cuba. So they are usually in pole position in terms of those who come to the rescue of whatever needs Cuba happens to have as well. You know, all this comes to mind because just very recently, Sister Donna Markham has announced her resignation as president of Catholic Charities USA. Sister Donna is an Adrian Dominican. She's led the organization since 2015. On her watch, the number of vulnerable people who were aided by Catholic Charities USA has risen to 115 million. Their scope of their activities has expanded significantly. And I like to think of Sister Donna as, in a sense, emblematic 
of all of those Catholics out there, clergy and lay, men and women, young and old, most of whom we will never know their names and their stories will never be told. But nevertheless, when there is tragedy, when there is disaster, when there is heartache, they step up and on the basis of their faith, try to bring healing to people whose lives have been broken in ways that most of us can't even imagine. It is the paradoxical effect of a tragedy like a hurricane that it has the capacity to elicit holiness. And obviously, when one would hope that it doesn't take something like that to summon the better angels of our nature, but nevertheless, it is cheering and edifying to see it when it does happen. Sister Donna, thank you for everything you've given the Catholic Church. Good luck in whatever comes next. Good luck to your successor. Those are some big shoes to fill. And for all of you who are engaged right now in the heavy lifting of hurricane relief, thank you. Godspeed. Let us know how we can help. That is our show for this week. Thank you for tuning in. For the next week, have a happy and blessed seven days. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We will talk to you again soon.